Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar partner, and really um, the, the guy who, uh, who who ran The Pillar this week. I was I have been out for most of this week, and Ed is the guy who has run the show, um, Ed Condon. So Ed, hello. Okay, you're, you're going to deliberately misinterpret this and do your laugh thing like I'm... <laughs> trying to shade you like that exactly like that but it's not meant that way at all is genuinely and i mean this in the best possible way i barely noticed you were gone oh no i appreciate that i really do that's really and it was it was really i mean both because we still talked every day several times a day because you know we are what we are when i say i wasn't um, working i mean i wasn't working was that you much were, <laughs> what you mean is you were posting things on the site right, you were yeah. still engaged and everything but no now that we have What's ter- what's shaping up to be an actual team here at the pillar between you and me and Michelle and now Luke and Kate Oliveira and, you know, and Brendan our correspondents Anatoly Brendan we have Edgar filing things from South we have we what what started eighteen months ago as uh, you and me as a duo has grown into a, a news team and it's really a cool thing to say it is I this I, I think I mentioned this to you on Monday but. Um, it's certainly been my experience this week is for the first time I really felt like calling ourselves editors of the site wasn't a sort of stylistic choice. It was a proper factual reflection of what I spent the bulk of my time doing this week. And Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's great. And I want to thank the roughly six eighths of our listeners who are pillar subscribers Thank you. You're making this happen. Yeah, you are. And we're, we, you know, the reason we were able to add, we've been able to add people to our team lately is because we're basically trusting in Providence that many of our listeners who are not yet subscribers will become subscribers and allow us at this point, um, when we are urging you to subscribe, it's not so much because we need to make sure this is a viable project for ourselves, although we still need to make sure this is a viable project for ourselves. It's that, um, uh, we are, uh, we have, um, trusted in the Lord's Providence and brought on some team members and, um, uh, invited them to do really good and important journalism at the pillar, and they are doing really good and important journalism at the pillar. And we need to pay them. And uh, I think they think we have a master plan for that. And our master plan for that is to trust in the providence of the Lord, i.e., our listeners. You know, I I have this conversation. I've had this conversation with my wife on more than one occasion, where she's quizzed me about you know sort of growth plans and how stable are we and stuff. And the number of times I've effectively defaulted to, well, huh, you know, the reason I, I said yes to this whole idea was because I'm doing it with JD and JD's got a great family and everything. And, you know, God's not going to leave him to hang out to dry. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm basically banking on God's providence to you and yours. more than really, you I know. did not mean for this to turn into listeners. I apologize. Cause I did not mean to, for this to turn into a subscription pitch, but you no, heard no, no. Um, no, I really, there's didn't. really big news this week. And we were actually going to do a whole episode about, uh, about the big news this week. Um, but we, we, we did, and I have, I have been out this week. My wife has been, um, sitting with a family member in hospice. Her, her grandma has been in hospice and is sort of at the end, um, towards the end, um, now. And, uh, my wife has been with her and, uh, and that means that I have been, um, corralling my children unsuccessfully. They have, de- they have defeated me, Ed. Um, and, uh, on so many levels, right? Emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, they have, they have conquered me. Um, but as a consequence of that, we, we had 
thought we would do a whole episode about very, very big news in, in not just the life of the church, but the life of the world, the life of our country. Um, and we didn't, so we're going to talk about it for most of this episode. But that is to say that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Planned Parenthood versus Casey has been overturned. A new day regarding the barbaric practice of abortion in America, a new day regarding the protection of the unborn in um, the United States. And um, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about that because it's a really, um, it's a, it's a monumentous thing. I mean, I, I, I think I've said this before sort of in anticipation, but I just never thought that I would say out loud, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Planned Parenthood versus Casey has been overturned because I really never believed this day would happen. And, and uh, a week ago, last Friday, Roe versus Wade was overturned. Edward? I have, I was wrong. That yeah. is the that is the number one thing. I I was skeptical for a long time, including on this podcast on several occasions. I was very skeptical about the idea that um, we were going to see anything like this kind of result coming out of the Supreme Court anytime, not just soon, but in the in the foreseeable future. I genuinely didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah, and I've never been happier to be wrong about something like this. It's it, it's pretty great. I um. One of the things has been great. Um, we had some great stuff up right away. Um, Charlie Camacy talked to Carter Sneed and did some, you know, sort of, I, I think that was up within 15 minutes mm-hmm. of the decision being published. Something ridiculous like that. So that was fabulous. Um, and had some, you know, some myth busting stuff. Because, I mean, there is, there's obviously in the wake of this decision, there's been a week of, I mean, propaganda sounds like kind of a, an inappropriate word because propaganda suggests that you're, you know, taking a kernel of something and misrepresenting it. It's well, what we've seen is just lies. Yeah, just right. Exactly. A, a barrage of lies about yeah. what this means. Yeah. You know, that if you have an ectopic pregnancy, you will be left to die because of the decision in Dobbs. Like just nonsensical, utterly false information spewing forth from, you know, the darkest corners of the internet and MSNBC. And, you know, it just, uh, that has been um, a thing, and it will continue to be a thing. I mean, it's going. We're, we're going to see it, and this is the thing that strikes me, JD. This is the thing about what comes next about all of this is because it's now back to the states, and we've. Um, I, I said something about this. I forget why. What occasion me? I think it was after the leaked decision earlier this year. I, you, and I talked about um, what I thought was the likelihood of pro-life. Democrats getting a look in mm-hmm. again yeah. in the national picture because they would have to be yeah. given the reins in avowedly pro-life states with total abortion bans, places like Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, you know, places like that. Um, and and that if you were going to have a Democratic Party in a state which had a settled anti-abortion consensus, you were going to have to give the reins to pro-life Democrats and you couldn't then just exclude basically a third of the country from the national Democratic conversation within their party and that could but i think what we are going to see as a sort of corollary to that because all of this fracture around i mean you've got the states to have absolute abortion bans now and there are some um but most of the most of the country is going to be somewhere in the middle you know you're going to have an equal i'd say third that are you know going the way of new york and california and massachusetts and you know having absolute enshrinement of maximalist abortion but you're gonna have all these states in the middle and of course one thing we we know from looking at polling and some people asked me about a poll I'd mentioned earlier. They asked me on the Twitters and said, you know, you mentioned a poll about this and I, I, I'm not entirely sure which poll I was referencing because I 
don't listen to the show once we've recorded it. Um, but there was a Rasmussen poll, I think, in 2018 that I have referenced more than once, which was when heartbeat laws started coming yeah. in. Mm-hmm. And they asked people about... I remember I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it was a fascinating poll. So if you're looking for polling on you know how people's perception of what they're in favor of, for and against, in terms of Roe v. Wade and heartbeat laws and stuff like that, Rasmussen did some really interesting polling on that, and I think it was in 2018. Um, anyway, we're going to have this national conversation by and large in the middle of, well, abortion is going to be legal in most states at some point, at some point but what right. is the point? Yeah, yeah. But what is the point? Yeah. And where that conversation goes and how that conversation is going to play out is going to really be a moment of public education for most people who have only ever understood abortion as a binary proposition. There is Roe v. Wade, there is abortion, or you are against Roe v. Wade and you are against abortion. And so there's never, you know, the whole concept of legal abortion has been a sort of sealed black box. And that, well, this is when you can hear a baby's heartbeat in the womb. This is when a child can survive outside the womb on its own. This is when, you know, you can, the moment of conception, when you can track its individual distinct human DNA. You know, all of this stuff is going to be discussed in public as this band of states looks to come up with their own settlements on where they want their abortion laws to be. And the only way to fight against what everyone on the pro-abortion side is going to see as an unacceptable limiting of abortion because any limit on abortion is unacceptable to them they're going to have to fight the science with just a slew of false information mm-hmm. just right negative anti-truth of you know no roe v wade means like i said women who have ectopic pregnancies will be left to die because even to, though ectopic pregnancies are not considered to be abortion under law so regulation of abortion is not the same as regulating ectopic exactly pregnancies. right exactly you, you will have you know a bunch of stuff like this and, I mean, you've seen it uh, even in the moral arguments. But, you know, well, the church doesn't really believe this because the Catholic Church doesn't baptize um, stillborn born babies, children. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, this this sort of, you know, absolute ludicrous nonsense that you're seeing. And this is going to be the new characteristic debate is we have we have moved from the, what the post-Roe abortion conversation in this country will look like is just a campaign of misinformation. And... We are entering a point where it is never going to have been more important in this conversation to have Catholic doctors, Catholic healthcare professionals, medical ethicists taking a lead in talking in public about saying, you know, this this is the reality. This is the reality of the creation of human life. This is the reality of what pregnancy looks like. This is also the reality of what abortion looks like, by the way, because it's long been my contention that the reason you... Um, you see all of this sort of, you know, hand-wringing, pearl-clutching, pro-abortion media reaction in, in the European press when they talk about Roe v. Wade and the Supreme Court decisions. They have absolutely yeah. no idea what we're up to in this country. Right. Yeah. They have none. Like the, the abortion... Well, many the European legal abortion countries practice, who have been critical of Roe versus Wade, you know, in which, in which people have been critical of Roe versus Wade already restrict abortion more heavily than most U.S. states. In, in fact, I think more than oh, yeah. Mississippi wanted to, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, yeah. you have um, Boris Johnson, a Catholic... Um, saying he's always been in favor of women's right to choose and all this sort of stuff, you know, criticizing Emmanuel Macron, of course, said something French about it. Um, but the fact is that they have there are there are gestational limits on abortion in those countries, significant ones, right? Um, you know, the idea if you ha- if you if you proposed uh, an expansion of abortion in the UK or France, let alone Spain or Scandi countries or, or Germany or something like that, um, along the lines of the New York state abortion regulations, people would think you were an absolute monster. They wouldn't. Mm-hmm. They they wouldn't understand how anyone could conceive of the idea of abortion during birth. They would just right. they, they'd look at you like you had three heads. 
Um, but again, this is this is a result of what has been a very successful effort over the last several decades to keep the reality of abortion and abortion policy in a sort of sealed black box that just doesn't get open, doesn't get, doesn't get discussed. The contents are never really known. It just reduces abortion to a binary proposition. And that binary proposition is gone now. And that is going to be the, the really interesting thing in the next couple of years. Yeah. It'll be interesting, too, to see how Catholics approach that, because for Catholics, for pro-life Catholics, abortion is a binary proposition. Um, abortion is a grave moral evil. Uh, abortion is morally intolerable at all stages of fetal development, and the Church has been pretty clear that abortion ought to be legally intolerable at all stages of moral development. And at the same time, the documents of the CDF, dating back three papacies now, have said consistently... DDF. Oh, excuse me, you're right. The documents of the DDF, the new, newly renamed Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, but I'm just going to keep saying CDF. The documents of the CDF, <laughs> I'm going to be a trad about Predicate Evangelium and keep saying the names of congregations as congregations. Um, but really, it's just being a fussy old man and refusing to change. The documents of the Holy Office of the Inquisition um, have been clear that legal protection for abortion should always be intolerable because abortion is a grave moral evil. And yet, Catholics can, if they have a reasonable chance of... Um, increasing regulation of abortion by political compromise ought to work towards that. So th one of the things that I think will be really interesting in states where there are going to be fights over abortion is there has always been division um, in the pro-life movement among people who uh, would say, no, we won't support anything except a total ban on abortion and any kind of um, you know compromise on that is a compromise on protecting human lives, and those who say we should try to restrict, legally restrict as much, the plausibility of as many abortions as possible, especially recognizing, you know, that um, very, very early term, very, very, very early term abortions are not, you know, are not often, you know, do not take place statistically as often. So if you can legally restrict them, the, the um, the majority of the things by uh, by a um, by political compromise, then you know there are pro-lifers who say that's the path, and the church says that that's a you know a reasonable approach to take. It's not cooperation with evil or anything like that. But there are people who say, well, any kind of support for or vote for a bill, a referendum that um, uh, isn't a total ban on abortion is effectively complicit in um, in the sanctioning of abortion. And I I think that there will be states in which that split uh, that that split in the pro-life movement will become all the more acute as you see pro-life organizations in states where there will be a ballot referendum or a legislative fight sort of take very different, um, very different um, tax. The pro-life movement is, is sort of inherently fractious, and um, it's amazing to talk with state-level leaders in pro-life advocacy organizations because in, it will not take long for them to tell you why the leader of the other pro-life advocacy organization in the state is either you know, fatally compromised or too absolutist to be effective. I mean, they're just... I think there there are often these divisions, and I think you know there are probably people, well, there are people who say there are spiritual reasons for that, and I think that probably is true. Uh, but the uh, the the pro life movement is very 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 good at infighting, which actually makes the overturn of, of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey all the more incredible in a certain way, right? Because um, you sort of said, well, here are ways in which the pro abortion lobbyists have framed the message, framed the conversation, and they have the fact that the conversation is about a thing called choice instead of a thing called, you know, murder is a, is, is a rhetorical and social strategy uh, of the pro-abortion movement. And um, so they have framed the conversation most of the time in most places. And yet Roe versus Wade and, um, and, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey have been overturned. And that's really an extraordinary thing. Yeah, it, it is. It's remarkable. And I think you're right about that. You will get this sort of sell out versus hold out um, 
right yeah, that's in a good some way places to... and i mean i don't get it i've never gotten it myself i just i've, I've always taken the perhaps cynically pragmatic approach that any <laughs> any opportunity to stop any number of abortions from happening is a good one and we should seize it with both hands but you know what do i know i, I was think wrong about the supreme court so i think the argument of people who say no you you shouldn't uh, uh, sort of compromise legislatively. And I, and this is honestly a small, I think a smaller constituency among pro-life advocates and pro-life lobbyists and stuff like that, but nevertheless a very vocal one. Um, I think the argument is effectively, well, you're saying that you will restrict abortion in this way as a kind of intermediary step, but we're never going to get to the end step because you've already signaled that this is acceptable. And, um, well, that doesn't uh, you make know, any sense to me at all because if you if you accept that, the more people learn about abortion, then the more, as a crowd, people... There will be less public support for it, right? Le- ...begin to favor more and more abortion restrictions, then that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you we, we've seen this. If you propose to people the binary of, are you for or against Roe v. Wade and the right to abortion? A majority of people say, oh, I'm in favor. But then you take away the sort of banner headline of the binary pro-Roe v. Wade, pro-abortion, anti-whatever... And say, well, okay, are you in favor of abortion at birth through all nine months of pregnancy? No. No, I'm not in favor of that. Nobody is. Well, some people are, but they're they're called lunatics and uh, the Democratic um, Congressional Caucus. But, um, you know, by and large, that's not, that's not popular. Even amongst New York State self-identifying Democrats and um, self-described pro-choice voters. Like they did the polling after the New York State... Um, abortion law was put in in 2020 and um you know it's it, it, it what it provided didn't even match up with what self-described pro-choice democrats wanted in new york so if you accept that the more you educate people the more in favor of restrictions on abortions they get then it makes total sense to me that if you say well if you're not in favor of abortion up to the moment of birth well can we agree that you should cut it halfway and if they say yeah they say okay great well so now you've agreed to that but well, here's a, you know, do you, and then it's again to the Rasmussen poll at the time the heartbeat bills were coming in saying, well, do you think that you should be able to have abortions at eight weeks? No, that's too soon. You know, you should, we should definitely be allowed to have abortions through the first eight weeks of pregnancy. It's just too soon to, to okay. Do you support having an abortion when you can hear a baby's heart rate? No, that's monstrous. Well, here's a baby's heart rate detectable at six to eight weeks. Now, what do you think? Well, actually, okay. Half of the people who were against a banning abortion at eight weeks of pregnancy are suddenly in favor of it. You know, of course, the conversation moves, the more people know. And that's the whole purpose of a political dialogue trying to chip away at any legal protection for abortion is it's an act of public education. The more conversation and the more understanding of exactly how grotesque the practice of abortion is, the less public support there is for it. It's this is a you know, we are we're facing a gigantic cliff face of opposition, but it's a cliff made of sand. You can erode it. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I agree with you. But I yes, I, I agree with you that I think that is the right strategy. So nevertheless, there are people who exist in, in the sphere of the pro-life universe who say we shouldn't accept these legislative compromises that we're compromising on the babies, etc. And while you've been talking, I've been thinking about uh, listening attentively, but also <laughs> while you've been talking, I've been thinking about, OK, a few minutes ago, I said the uh, I, a few minutes ago, I said what I've usually thought, which is that the fractioning, there's a spiritual root to the fractioning of the, the sort of perennial fractioning of the pro-life movement and the way in which there's a great deal of infighting and people tend to split and faction over these kinds of things. And uh, look, I think that's probably the most sort of um, cogent or the most, there's the best sort of evidence of that, 
Maybe, maybe. I, I'm walking that back, actually, and I'll tell you why. Uh, yes, that there's a spiritual reason, but what that usually means is there are spiritual attacks on the pro-life movement and they attack unity. That tends to be what people say. The, there are spiritual attacks on the pro-life movement and they attack unity, and therefore you have people with very different ideas, and as these things come up in, about what should be done, and as these things come up in at the state level, that's going to impede the ability to restrict abortion, or it's going to impede... You know, perhaps the unity of the pro-life movement is looked at as a good in itself, and it's going to impede that, and therefore there will be consequences. That's, I think, the ordinary way in which people talk about that. But while you were talking, I was thinking about that. And I found myself wondering, um, I agree with you that the way in which um, the political projects go is by a um, greater degree of education and exposure, that most people don't know very much about what an abortion is, and when you, and when you sort of do what you can to strip away a lot of the... Um, euphemistic language um, that's used, you get different answers than the kind of language that's used without euphemistic language, or if you frame things in different ways, you get different answers, because there's just not a lot of cogent and coherent sort of understanding of these things, of fetal development and these kinds of things, let alone um, sort of cogent and coherent sort of philosophy of law or human, the human person or something like that. Um, but is it not equally possible, I suppose? Could I not propose with with and perhaps it could be equally convincing that among people in the pro-life movement, many of whom, um, you know, are like daily mass goers, daily communicants, frequently a confession, do, doing many, many things to invite the Lord into their life and into their work. Is it possible that some of the division of disagree um, is not a consequence of spiritual attacks, but a design of providence? And by that, I mean, is it possible that the no compromisers are um, are the prophetic conscience of the whole thing to ensure that that, that there's not, in fact, a sort of, well, we can get most of the way there and then stop because look how far we got. Um, that the sort of, uh, that there, there's a way in which um, the sort of fringe element, I don't know the degree to which it's a fringe, but let's say sort of fringe to minority element saying, um, you know, and this this exists in the pro-life movement in various ways, don't support these bills that are, um, that are compromises, exists perhaps in the providential plan of God to remind us that those that that process is not in itself, or that that compromise is not in itself sufficient, or the end, or that there's sort of continued work to do to protect the unborn. Is that possible? I suppose. I mean, it depends, I guess, on how you view the the premise of incremental restriction and reform. If your understanding of the idea of incremental erosion of all legal protections for abortion is that there's there's a line somewhere at which you say, all right, your terms of accept, your your the abortion lobby's terms of surrender are acceptable. You can have this much, and we'll we'll take the rest. Then, yeah, I would agree that we need a prophetic witness. That says no, no, no settlement can ever be reached in a permanent way. But there's a difference between saying yes, we will allow a negotiated surrender that protects some form of abortion, and saying no, we'll just keep pressing the campaign in stages and take it all away from them one month and, and, one trimester perhaps, at a time and perhaps perhaps is it possible i'm just raising it is it possible that those who are far more sort of who are who are not who are non-compromisers on a political in a political sense who say no compromise ever is it possible that such persons exist in order to help the majority of pro-life people who are working for legislative solutions the let the, the art of the possible who are working towards the art of the possible to prevent them from sort of settling into um a cynical diminishment of their own sort of capacity or expectation or their end game. I mean, I'm just wondering. Maybe. If that's the know. case, then that would be a sign of exactly how effective the abortion lobby in this country has been over the last several decades in persuading 
people who understand that every abortion is the taking of an innocent human life that, well, you're going to have to accept some genocide. Or um, even if it's not for pro-life people themselves, I mean, is it possible that in God's plan, the people who are the no compromise... So um, I think that there are pro... I think that there are... Um, I'm just saying there's a, there are in, in places that we just discussed in other countries yeah. where they have what would be considered in, for example, New York or California, totally unacceptable limits on abortion. Um, there, the there is there there are there is an active, real pro-life movement, both in society and in politics, um, that isn't even the littlest bit blunted by the fact that you know abortion isn't legal after twenty-four weeks unless the mother's life is in danger or whatever. It, you know, it doesn't make any difference to them. It's not like they've said, well, we comparably, we're doing very well here. So I guess we're, you know, we're doing right. No, they fight still. Not not so much in New York, right? But maybe, okay, so what's the Mississippi ban that um, that triggered all this? A 15-week ban? 15-week, yeah. So if you're a pro-lifer in Mississippi, or more to the point, if you're pro-life, if you're a legislator, I think there are some legislators, some lawmakers who are anti-abortion because they're anti-abortion and some lawmakers who are anti-abortion because they ha- their constituents are really care about this thing and they've got to, you know, they've got to give them what they want. Um, it, it is the case that uh, if you are a lawmaker in Mississippi who is not especially convicted about the unborn, uh, you might be inclined to say to your constituents at this point, hey, I did what you asked. We overturned Roe versus Wade. Aren't you people satisfied? And to sort of think, well, if these people are going to keep making, you know, if you're not actually convicted about the unborn, but you're a lawmaker who feels like he has to, aren't you people satisfied? And there's a way in which lawmakers might just say, you know, we've, we've done it. Okay, we've done it. Let's congratulate ourselves. Is it possible that the sort of no compromise voices in the pro-life movement exist to sort of make sure that no one says, yeah, we got pretty far, we got pretty far down the line. And legislator, you know, for legislators to say, hey, we got you most of what you want to be content with that. Um, but to know, no, that indeed there are um, people who will continue to push for the abolition of abortion, period. Because there are no acceptable, there is no, ultimately, there's no finally acceptable compromise on the slaughter of the unborn. There are only sort of mediated steps. And, and I guess all I'm saying is, um, is it possible that those who are no compromisers exist uh, in order to remind us and lawmakers of that reality. Perhaps, but if there are lawmakers who would be inclined to say what you've just outlined, they'd be the dumbest politicians in history. Because what you do, if you're a politician and you have an issue that is of grave concern to your voting base, and you deliver them a huge win, you don't say, look, I delivered you a huge win. You don't need me anymore. You say, all right, we got this one. Now let's, you know, what's going next? And you you continue. I mean, unless the politician is like, so I guess I can retire now. Like, what's the argument that I'm? We've overturned Roe v. Wade. You people believe passionately that abortion is the grave taking of an innocent human life at any stage. We've overturned Roe v. Wade. We've brought in a 15 week abortion ban uh, in the state. So that's all I'm going to do for you. So you better. I find think there it. will be. I think there will be. Well, I, there, maybe they will be. I'm just saying they're the dumbest political strategists I've ever come across in my entire life. Let me tell you how that primary challenge is going to go, but okay. Okay. So, so many persons, uh, let's talk about another thing. So, um, I have heard from, from, from listeners of this show over the past few few days who have said, um, uh, or the past week who have said, Hey, listen, I'm hearing from a lot of people now who say, well, you know, the, Catholics just push for an end to abortion, and but Catholics don't actually care about the baby once the baby is born. And oh, that's can you provi- can you provide me with data about the charitable works that the Catholic Church does? Um, it, it it is it is unquestionably true and been, has been frequently demonstrated that 
both globally and in, and domestically, the Catholic Church is the sort of largest social service network, you know, network of social service agencies and provision of services to the poor um, in in the world and and nationally, apart from sort of governments. And it has been, and, and the Catholic Church in the United States through the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops spends a lot of its time lobbying for expansion of social safety nets in very many ways. I mean, you just have to prove if you, their website. If you are looking minutes. for proof of the work that the Catholic Church does in this country to support the poor, the marginalized, the the at risk. I would encourage you to watch. Um, what's it called? It's a show. It's got three vacuous idiots on a sofa. Um, Fox and Friends. <laughs> I've uh, never seen. I would encourage you to watch a show called Fox and Friends because, as people keep pointing out to me, they seem to make as a recurring theme the the horrible Catholic Church that keeps funding oh, all of this right. These crap are people for just, you know the poor Catholic people Church and migrants. Doing, yeah, Can you right, believe right, right, it? Right, right. And, so, so yeah, so you could look at it that way. Uh, yeah, so th- it is demonstrably true that the Catholic Church is the largest provider of, you know, is a large network of providers of social service ministries of various kinds to serve the poor in the United States, um, period, and, and globally as well. With that, and so, you know, you can find that stuff. With that said, though, one of the things I want to say is what a red herring it is that sort of the, an argument, another argument that will be raised in, in state fights over abortion is this, the Catholic Church doesn't care about people after the born. I mean, it's 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 silly on its face. But second of all, like it it feeds into this thing about like, well, if you don't, it, this thing that I frequently hear from people, which is like, if you don't care about every single thing on my political agenda that I think is necessary for human dignity, you're not really pro life, and you shouldn't be talking about abortion. Here's the thing: abortion is a grave moral evil, and whatever your political positions are, if you're not on everything else, which you know none of you are, you're very discerning. But if you're not on everything else, um, not to the left and not to the right. I don't, if you're not on everything else, s- saying the reality that abortion is a grave moral evil, it does not seem to me should be contingent on your other political positions. And pro-life people should be comfortable saying, it seems to me, abortion is a grave moral evil without sort of taking the bait of, and let me tell you why that's not just something we're saying because we don't care about women and here are all the things we do. We do. The Catholic Church does all of the things. And Ed, you and I are extremely critical of the governance, uh, you know, not extremely critical. You and I cover in a straightforward way the governance of the life of the church and will continue to do so. We think public accountability matters. Not every element of social service ministry in the life of the Catholic Church is done, you know, correctly or according to, or effectively or according to the teachings of the Catholic Church, and that ought to be attended to. But yeah, the ca- Catholics hold that... Um, we have a prioritization to love the poor, and if we don't, we're going to hell, and that governments have a prioritization to provide you know, justice to all people in, in a variety of ways that actually matter, and we should advocate for those things. Um, and we should continue to advocate for those things, and people who have libertarian sort of philosophies of, of law that say that government doesn't have a responsibility for the sort of flourishing of families and to support the flourishing of families, because that's what subsidiarity actually is, are not sort of drawing their political reality from the catechism, but... We can say all that and at the same time say just on its face, abortion is a grave moral evil and should be prohibited, well, period. Absolutely. But the other, the, the one, that, the, the particularly dumb one that I hate, and it's actually, I, I tend to only see this articulated by Catholics, pro, pro-abortion Catholics, strangely enough, is you say, well, you know, well, congratulations, you've, you know, you, you've ushered in an era where we can have total abortion bans, but you've. You know, if you had a concern, if you had a real concern for women, you'd make sure the social safety net was there in place to help all mothers in need before first, you, you would have done it first. Yeah. So let me just let me just say that is the logical reasoning of saying, well, we have a chronic overcrowding in our prison system and chronic underfunding. So we're going to start executing all the inmates so that we can, you know, 
just make sure that we have the resources. And to then say, their argument against ending abortion without social is to say, well, you shouldn't advocate against executing all the prison inmates until you have appropriate funding in place. It's like, no, killing people is wrong. The, the time to stop the killing of the people is now. That there, there's no, well, you should really wait on the killing of the entire class of person until we figure out what to do with them is the most monstrous, dystopian, Malthusian insanity. I mean, it's unworthy of the Fabian society in the 20s and 30s when it was at its most eugenicist. I mean, th- these people are lunatics, J.D., I'm pretty liberal, Ed, um, on how, on affordable access to health care. So am I. Um, social safety. I know you are. I'm just saying that, I, like, I I think that, that um, social service provisions in this country are woefully insufficient in any number of ways, and that subsidiarity really does require support for the sovereignty uh, of the family and the flourishing of the family in lots of ways that um, that uh, that don't that that have not been manifested legally and politically in this country. With that said. The if I if I trust the church, the church has said rather concretely, um, protection of the right to life of the unborn is a sort of a prerequisite for the accomplishment of just social safety nets because you cannot possibly build a just social system with a sort of built-in or baked-in assumption that a certain number of people um, will be aborted. That you that if you do that, that if you do not account for the justice of the abor- of the unborn in any kind of social safe social safety net provisioning that you're doing or you know, social justice provision that you're doing, then you are effectively building um, your policy, uh, not just on a house of sand, but on, on a house of death. And I, I, I take that seriously. Um, I, I take that seriously. It seems to me that what the church is saying is you, you are better able to accomplish justice for all when you have secured the, the right to life of all. And part of that, I think, is because it just engenders, again, a, a more concrete commitment to um, the notion of human dignity and that human dig- and that human lives deserve legal protection and legal support at all at all phases of life. I, I think that's true. If you don't accept that premise from the you know from the teachings of the church, it's still it's still it seems to me sort of highly irrational, as you say, to say, if you think this thing is killing people, um, we cannot stop the killing of the people until such time as we can assure. Um, Justice for the people in any number of ways. No, well, stop you, the killing the only of the way that that argument and makes then sense. Proceed along for securing justice for the people in other ways. Right, but that Be- that argument only makes any kind of coherent internal logic if you have a philosophy that says, "Well, humanity is an equation to be balanced, and the remainder's got to be deleted." I mean that. I, right. I mean it's a Stalinist perspective, which is right. you know, yeah. it's like, that's why you need to go like archipelago. It's just too many people, not enough wheat, and you know tractor mm-hmm. supplies down in the Urals. So. You know, yeah. sorry, 11 million people are going to have to starve. You know, whatever it is, I, this, it, it just, I, I, it, it, it's amazing to me. But I mean, again, you were saying this to me earlier this week after you went and sort of hung out at um, various places in downtown Denver for the protests. I want to talk about that in one second. Give me one second. I have to close my window. Okay. Because Kate's going to start mowing the lawn. Wait a minute. Did you say sorry, your you wife saying... is going to start mowing the lawn? My wife loves mowing the lawn. If I suggested to my wife that she mow the lawn, she would look at me with, uh, uh, she would give me a look that could open an oyster at 60 paces. It, it, it would not be pleasant. Mrs. Flynn loves mowing the lawn and, uh, and, and I like it well enough. And, uh, and so we actually, we frequently disagree about who sort of will get to mow the lawn because both, both enjoy it and, uh, and, um, 
I have tried at various times to claim like, no, I get to mow the lawn all the time because I'm, but because I'm the husband is sort of like, there's not, I get to mow the lawn because I'm the, there's not like, I don't think a very, very kind of clear sort of demonstrable argument that that's something I can just sort of claim um, X, you know, I, I don't know, ex-husbandy or whatever. Um, Ex-officio, you don't get to... Yeah, that I can't... You don't I have a sort of standard delineation of, well, the presumption is if it's outdoor, it's man's Well, work. but the point, I, I think that is a cultural presumption, but the point is... No, I'm saying it's not I, a cultural I, presumption that you preserve in your house. It's not a cultural presumption that we preserve in our house because we both enjoy doing the things. And I don't think there's any, like, I have not successfully found some argument like, well, Mrs. Flynn, you have to accept my right to mow the lawn because of some sort of footnote in Humani Generis, which I'm about to pull up and, and show you, you know, like there's nothing I think inherently, this is inherently patriarchal of mowing the lawn. She loves mowing the lawn, man. That's she, great. She I, no, I'm, I'm envious. I have, I mean, I live in DC, so this time of year I have to mow my lawn twice a week. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's <laughs> ridiculous. But what that means, I mean, it's not that I mind mowing the lawn particularly, so I just then, I don't have time to do anything like with the flower beds or you know, all the other stuff that I would actually like to do in the arts. So. You, you see, I, we have no, Ms., neither Mrs. Flynn nor I have any ambition to plant flowers. And uh, sometimes people will give us a potted plant, like an outdoor potted plant. And <laughs> I don't know. I only <laughs> grow things that are edible, but I, yeah, I'd yeah. like to grow more of them. I, um, we do have a, we do have a, we, we put a raspberry bush in the ground two years ago and we didn't really do anything with it. Just our friend gave us a, our neighbor gave us a cutting and we stuck it in the ground. It's a raspberry cane. Oh, like it was just a stick. You're right. It was just a stick when we when we planted it. I think it had did it have roots when we planted it. I would hope so. Otherwise, it would die. Yeah. Okay. So it was a stick with roots. I guess I'm told. And uh, we planted that in a raised bed two years ago. And um, uh, it, it's a wonderful plant for us because we don't have to do anything. And um, last year it didn't fruit, but they told us our neighbor told us it'll take two years for it to fruit. So last year it didn't fruit, but this year it's raspberrying up. Like I like I've got to go out there with a the bucket even. Oh yeah. And and yesterday I was just standing by it eating raspberries i was gonna say do your kids not do it because my grandmother growing up my grandmother's backyard was completely hedged with raspberry Mm -hmm. bushes that's a lot of thorns for kids huh uh well it wasn't a problem for me and she would send me out with several buckets to you know clean the raspberry and i would come back in looking like i just survived you know a mob hit um and you know stuffed to the gills and produce still several parts so yeah those things well the other kids might the the raised beds are on sort of the side of our are the side of our house our backyard and then there's a little side bit i love how we uh, somehow completely segued from roe v wade into gardening i've got more things to roe v wade to say but i want to okay we're gonna uh, run out of show (laughs) the raised beds are on the side of the house and davy always tells me that he's afraid to go over there by himself and so he asked me to go he's five you know whatever so it's not scary over there, I don't think, but um, he asked me to sometimes to go with him so he can eat a raspberry. But as a consequence of that, he's not just standing over there eating a ton of raspberries. I don't know. Fair um, I have more things I want to say about Roe versus Wade. This may end up being a Roe versus Wade show. I think it probably if is. It is. That's probably... Well, the other thing we were going to talk about, guys, was the liturgy document from the Holy See. So now it's we're going to end up promising a, a, a dedicated liturgy show. No, we're not going to have a dedicated liturgy show. We make a show a week. We try, we're trying. We're trying here, guys. Uh, we make a show a week, and uh, and if we don't get to the liturgy thing, it, it'll still exist next week, and we'll have had more time to discuss it. Because honestly, hot taking an eleven thousand word letter from the Pope on sacred liturgy is probably not a good idea anyway. So by next week, we could have really thoughtful, studied reflections on the thing. That is you true. know what I'm saying, Ed? I do. Yeah. So by intention, we're not going to. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. 
Listeners, this episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by The Saint Maker, a Catholic life planner. If you're the kind of person who already plans your life and plans it well with the aid of a planner, you should check out The Saint Maker um, at thesaintmaker.com, which is a Catholic planner that gives you space for um, setting goals, personal goals, spiritual goals, intellectual goals, even work-related goals, home-related goals, and at the same time provides for you space to record your spiritual life in a way that draws from the riches of the Church's spiritual um, theology and spiritual pastoral practice. So this is a planner, probably the only planner that encourages you to make a daily examine and to recognize the presence of the Lord in your life and to invite the Lord into parts of your life in which you do not sense His presence. Um, This is a thing that will help keep you on track, not only with your appointments, but with um, your spiritual appointments with the Lord. It's called the Saint Maker. And I mean, I, I get it. It makes sense to me because I mean, the spiritual life is some, it is a discipline as, as much as anything else. And if you want to cultivate an interior life, if you want to cultivate a prayer life, um, it is, it is the perennial wisdom of the church that this requires a rhythm as it requires the building of habit. It requires constant self-reflection. So having tools like this, I, I can see the utility of very, very easily. Listeners of the Pillar Podcast can get a Saint Maker free trial offer. You can try it for 90 days risk-free. If you decide it's not for you, you can return it with a full refund, including shipping. And Pillar listeners can learn more about and get 10% off their first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and using the promo code pillar at checkout. If you are not the kind of person who is accustomed to using a planner, it's probably time to get serious about doing that both so that you make your appointments and um, because each one of us is called to become a saint. God is calling us to something great, and it's worth asking whether that's the path that we're on. The Saint Maker is centered on Catholic wisdom and um, aims to keep you focused, productive, and on fire for the faith every day. TheSaintMaker.com slash pillar. Use promo code pillar at checkout. And we're back to the Pillar Podcast. Uh, this episode of the Pillar Podcast brought to you by the Saint Maker Planner. Go to thesaintmaker.com slash pillar. Uh, we were talking about Roe versus Wade, and we're going to continue to talk about, talk about Roe versus Wade because it is an extraordinary thing that Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey have been overturned, sending the regulation of abortion to the states. Some states already prohibiting abortion. There are states in America, Ed, right now where abortion is illegal. Um, uh, and... Um, states in America where there will be an ongoing political fight about that. Of course, we have been talking about both the need to um, to work to achieve the Church's comprehensive vision of, so, of Catholic social justice—excuse uh, me, the Church's comprehensive vision of social justice, period—and at the same time, like, the need um, not to apologize for the fact that the legal prohibition of abortion is not only an element of that, but I, I think sort of a primary sort of predicate element of that. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, something that I did this week, Ed. I went to, um, here in Colorado, where I live, I went on Monday night to a a, a protest, a pro-abortion uh, protest. The reason I'm saying a pro-abortion pol- protest is because uh, the one of the first speakers at this thing, which was at the Colorado State Capitol on Monday night, um, told the attendees that this was not a pro-choice rally, that, that they should not sort of hide behind the language of pro-choice, but that... Um, they should acknowledge that they are indeed pro-abortion. And in fact, the crowd had to chant, the, the speaker said, when I say we are, you say. So everyone had to chant, we are pro-abortion, we are pro-abortion, time and again, time and again. There was a, it was a very concrete branding of the thing as pro-abortion. And most of the language that I heard was indeed about the importance of abortion as a mechanism to ensure um, the autonomy of women and um, you know justice for all people. Um, but a lot of the rally was also about um, 
the the idea of being part of a community that was centered on being pro-abortion, the idea of advocating as a community um, for the centrality of abortion, urging attendees at the rally to um, enter into this community, which is aiming towards an end which is bigger than itself, and to sort of draw their identity in a certain way, even from participation in that community. And what I was struck by, Ed, was the degree to which this pro-abortion rally had, it seemed to me, religious overtones. Now, um, you know, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I'm a religious person in the religious journalism business, so you could say, well, maybe that's just the lens through which you view all things. And But I don't think that's so. I really do think that there is a way in which um, political movements, not only this one, but political movements can become religious um, in, in nature. They can take on, they can offer a comprehensive and transcendent view of the universe, a kind of a cosmology, whether that's the cosmology of sort of class struggle or the cosmology of an oppressive patriarchy or the cosmology of the sort of, you know, um, a, a, a state of nature, a more just state of nature or something like that. Um, whether it's that cosmology or something else, um, they can offer a set of ethical principles which are, you know, sort of become normative for the group. They can offer rituals and and um, unifying sources of language and some sacred texts and um, and a sense of community they offer and and even ways of um, contrition and atonement I think there are way you know um, there are ways in which political movements can become religious and I think that's what I witnessed on Monday was um, something with a lot of religious character to it it was fascinating oh I absolutely have no difficulty in believing it and I think it's absolutely true that movements like this um, have developed, can develop, do develop a, a sort of quasi-spirituality. It's certainly a religious um, tone to them. And I mean, that. I mean, in part, this is just a, a, a reality of anthropology, I think, that, you know, man is a spiritual creature. So humanity is a spiritual creature. Aggregate, um, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But... You know, and if you strip away religion proper, rightly oriented to God, people will look to fill the God-shaped hole. Oh, right, exactly. And yeah. what you are—I mean, what you what you see with the with the you know the the sort of avowedly and proudly pro-abortion movement is it, it, what they are advancing is an anthropology. What they're advancing—I mean, it's a death cult. But it, it is, is a death a, cult. It's exactly right. It is a death cult. It is. It's a. It's a. It's but a it's sort of you know death cults are religion too. Right. I, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it is to say this human life has no value. This human life has more value. This is the the proper. I assert end. my power and autonomy by by owning and identifying that I have caused the death of another. And you know, I mean, this was these were things which were said. I assert. Right. Well, and I, again, know. it's it, it's a mechanism of human sacrifice. That this is not you know. This is a sacrifice necessary for my own personal fulfillment, my own... But for something, this nebulous thing called women, you yeah. know, just or for Or for the or... environment, or, right. you know, whatever else. It doesn't matter. You are you are presented with a higher cause. You are presented with your blood sacrifice. You, you know, you, you pay your ticket and you take the ride. I mean, this is... I, I don't have any difficulty. You see the same thing, by the way, in, and I have... I mean, just so people don't think that, um, you know, I'm... I'm myopic about this you, you see the same sort of religions uh, overtones creeping into stuff on i don't like left and right i find to be very inexact terms but you, you find it in the sort of crazy maga wing i don't know yep. that it's fair mm-hmm. to call it conservative i don't know that it's fair to call it republican even 
Um, but the far, but you know, the we, sort of QAnon crossover, you know, yes. I, lots and lots of people know sort of parents or someone who have become deep into the sort of QAnon network, yeah. uh, which is a very rich mythological cosmology, a very, very oh, rich boy. and comprehensive mythological cosmology. And I hear from people all the time who say my parents have been, uh, or my grandfather or someone has been sort of sucked into the the QAnon cosmology um, and, yeah. and, and become sort of radicalized into it. It becomes their life. I think you. I think there are also elements, and I've said this before, Red isn't to say it on the show because people are going to blow me up. Look, everyone knows that I think that the pandemic is real and that I got vaccinations and think you should wear a mask when you have to wear a mask. With that said, I think there are ways in which there, there are ways in which I have talked with people who seem to have derived elements of their identity or the meaning of their life from the pandemic, that there, that there are ways in which oh. for some people the pandemic takes on religious overtones, most especially sort of drawing meaning and identity from this thing. And and by the way, that's a religion that has certain sacramentals, that's a religion that has certain rituals, certain sort of social codes. And mm -hmm. again, that doesn't mean every single person who sort of and wears again, a mask towards an ostensible pandemic. higher cause and power. Right. And, and it's and and can become a health code cult. Again. Yeah. I think I have well, normal, no, I would, I would I I have normal perspectives on the pandemic. I think I'm a normie about the pandemic, but uh, no, so but don't you do like get, take it's, me it's as... It's not even a health cult, J.D. It's another death cult. Because well, this I is, don't know. No, it, it, let me let I me. I think explain. it's a sort of immortality. I think there's a, I think there's but that's a, what I mean. a sort of immortality the, movement. The basis of natural human religiosity, uh, the natural orientation of, hu of the human urge for religion, you can say is to seek God, which is true. But the, but the base animalistic instinct that drives that is the fear of death mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's what i mean when i say it's also in a way a death cult it's a it's a cult around the fear of death mm -hmm. i mean you could say the pro-abortion thing is a cult around the celebration of the killing and therefore celebration of which is an but, assertion of power over death right that i control yes, exactly. death in my hand exactly. like there was this woman who said you know there was a woman who was speaking at this rally it was very sad she's a midwife and it was interesting because midwives to my mind sort of use their hands to usher life from um, from from being in utero to being into the world, right? Use their hands mm -hmm. to sort of bring into the world new life. And uh, and this woman who was a midwife was talking about how she um, performed upon herself her own pharmaceutical abortion that she gave herself. Sort of, I, I don't know if she could prescribe. I, I don't know the rules about midwives, but that she gave herself sort of um, the pills that would cause an abortion, and that she taught it, it, not sort of. I think I think the implication was that she uh, that she was sort of making her own sort of determinations about what pills would cause uh, abortions because she said that she then taught other midwives. She said she taught fifty midwives in Texas how to help them um, perform abortions or administer um, pharmaceutical abortions. And um, it was I mean it was just I, I was I was just sad. I mean it was just sad. I was just struck by how by the sadness of that. But but what's really interesting is that she said you know we are. Um, we're, we're holding life in our hands. We're holding our lives in our hands. We're holding life and death in our hands. And it was very clear to me, an assertion of power, power. over this thing called the, these mysteries of life and death over which we have no power. And they are mysteries over which we have no power. Um, we have no more power over death than we have over the creation of life. And, um, you know, if you've been with someone who's dying and sort of hanging on and you sort of wonder why are they hanging on and all this suffering, um, you realize that we have no power over these mysteries and that they are, they, they bring with them, you know, pain, suffering, which has meaning and suffering, which seems not to have meaning and suffering, which seems dignified and suffering, which seems undignified. And, and, um, and, and there, it's very natural to be afraid of that kind of suffering. 
um, or to be afraid of the unknown of these mysteries and the profundity of them, or to want to sort of over, to sort of want to um, master them and conquer them rather than be subject to their whims. But we're not, and we can't. Uh, our God is, is the author of life, and therefore our God is the master of these mysteries, but we accept them as a part of the reality of the human condition and recognize that they can be elevated into, drawn into the life of the transcendent by virtue of our baptism, but nevertheless, um, sort of death may lose its sting, but can be no less visceral and difficult. Um, so when she talked about holding life in her hands, it really struck me again, as, as you say, as this, uh, as the desire of a death cult or, uh, of, of any kind of religion to sort of solve these mysteries, um, or, or the desire of many natural religions to sort of solve or, or exercise or control or influence over these mysteries. And so it's a very, it was very sad. It was very striking, but it also struck me that, um, the religiosity that was exhibited at this rally um, was evidence of the fact, as you say, that people are looking for the God-shaped hole, you know, to fill the God-shaped hole, but also, and and by virtue of that, evidence of the degree to which the gospel may be transmitted, um, the, the, the fact that the gospel may be transmitted by people who are effectively saying with their words, we are looking for meaning, we are searching for, we, we are grasping for meaning, we're grasping to understand the transcendent, and we are creating, as all sort of natural religions do, rituals uh, and um, and language, um, but to give ourselves meaning, to give our sense, our, a sense of belonging to something that our lives mean something that we can enter into a community, these that we can have uh, contrition and atonement, that we can have something called redemption, and um, and I'm reminded of Saint Paul, you know, who who didn't, whose response to pagan religions was not. Um, Oh, these people are just awful. But whose response to pagan religions was, um, you know, I preach the living God, and because I preach the living God, I have answers to these questions. You know, John Paul talks about um, Jesus Christ being the answer to the que the questions which plague every single human heart, um, or the question presented by every single human life. And I, I just was struck by the degree to which the questions themselves were on full display at this sort of quasi-religious demonstration. And therefore, you know, and maybe this sounds like a something I say a lot, a broken record. Therefore, um, the degree to which the gospel may, might be proclaimed and effectively. Now, the impediments to that are that such persons would think that the church is their enemy, that the church does not think they have dignity, that the church does not respect them, that anything the church would say is not credible. And those are real and authentic impediments that must be overcome. That the church, you know, that the church is not the thing that people think it is. Uh, it, may, it may well be more difficult to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom for people who th already think they know what the church is than the f for the people to whom St. Paul preached who had no idea what this sort of cult of um, of, uh, of Israelites was up to, uh, Palestinians was up to. But um, it, it may well be more difficult, but um, but it nevertheless, um, it, it's not only needed, but there's like a, a, a palpable search for the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, you, you talked about people who um, haven't haven't come out of the pandemic in a particularly healthy way. I mean, when I see, as I do all of the time around Washington, D.C., people alone in their cars wearing masks, I think this is a person who needs to hear the gospel. This is a person who is so terrified of death that they have invested with quasi-magical properties right. a piece of cloth on their face in a car alone. Like, right, right. You know, the, I've I have not seen that. Oh, I don't think in a, at least in a very long time. One car in six 
around where I am. Really? Yeah. Do you think maybe it's just like they get used to wearing it and they don't want, they feel like it's easier to keep it on than to put it down in the car and lose it or something like JD, that? JD, unless they have a far more effective car air conditioning system than I do, let me tell you, you do not want to wear in this weather right now, you do not want to wear a cloth mask on your face in a car at all, let alone alone, alone. This That's is the true. thing. Like, What's it protecting you from? It's talismanic behavior. It's magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is talismanic behavior. I mean, I think that's part of what I was trying to say is that that these things, the mask and stuff, do take. I'm wearing the thing, and I won't die. You're still going to die. We're all going to die. I think sometimes, as, I think sometimes as believers, we can think other people don't want to hear what I have to say. Other people, this is just what I do, but other people don't want it, or people hate us, or people don't want. Uh, people will not want to hear the gospel, or will not think that, or think what I do is stupid, or whatever. I think there's ample evidence that indeed, like, the Christian life is desired by people who don't know what it is, that the, that the fruits of the Christian life are desired by people who don't know, who have not heard the gospel. And um, I think that fear, like, oh, people will think this is stupid. It's probably true that most people think it's stupid, but um, but that doesn't mean that there's not at the same time this profound desire for for the meaning which comes from knowing knowing the truth and living according to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You want to say a little more about that? No, I didn't because we were at an hour and you have a game that I've been <laughs> okay. dying to play all week and I have an interview call. I, I did not write the game that you've been dying to play all week you... because I have been, oh. I told you I was going to write it. I told you I was going to write it. It's an awesome game. I'm so mad. Awesome I was looking game. forward to I that. I have been, what have I been doing all week? I just Raising thought you my were kids, writing man. in your head as you were wrangling uh, children. You thought, you thought that I've been corralling children all week and also writing the amazing game that I told you we were going to play. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I'm sorry. I believed in you I too much. I, uh, you did. You did. I, I cannot deliver. I promised at an amazing game this week that would have been a lot of fun. That will be a lot of fun because we are going to play. We're not going to play now because I didn't write it as you just heard. But I promised at an amazing game this week. And uh, we're going to have to bring that bring you that next week as well as bringing you some stuff on the Pope's Apostolic Liter- Letter on the Liturgy and whatever else is happening in the news and the life of the church. Um, or among Catholics. We will be back for that next week. And we really will have. Tune in next week because I think this game is going to be a lot of fun. I, oh, Should I tell them what it's called? Yes. Next week, we're going to play a game called, and you're not going to know what this is, but next week, we're going to play a game called Too Many Jennifers, and you're going to love it. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. I have to wait into the week. I'm sorry. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and at Pillar in Chief, JD Flynn. I did not, I am not yet the author of Too Many Jennifers. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co founder, Ed Condon, who is deeply and sorely disappointed in me, as he so often is. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I don't know if she's disappointed in me or not, but we'll be back next week. <laughs>